An opinionated husband and his pious wife were getting ready to have breakfast. And the husband told the wife to go make him some coffee. The wife, who was a little fed up with him, answered, Why do I always have to make the coffee? The husband said, Because you're the wife. That's your job. The wife replied, Well, according to the Bible, it's not the woman's job to make the coffee. It's the man's. Well, the husband was a little taken aback by this and asked where exactly in the Bible it said that. The wife opened her Bible and said, Here it is, right here, Hebrews. <laughs> this, this particular wife uh, may have a similarly negative reaction to today's gospel. In fact, a lot of women might. Um, after all, here's Simon Peter's mother-in-law, so ill with a fever that she can't manage to get out of bed. But when Jesus heals her, she pops right up and begins doing what women were meant to do, serve food to men who've come to visit. None of the men that Jesus heals in the Gospels does anything similar. Lazarus doesn't come out of his tomb and immediately fire up his grill. It seems as if the women's illness was a particular inconvenience because it kept her from fulfilling her God-given purpose to wait on men. Now, it's fairly easy to explain away the uncomfortable implications of this scene. Some might say that the story is told in this way to emphasize how completely the woman is healed. Without any recovery time at all, she's up and at full strength doing a normal day's work indicating that this was a true miracle, not just some sort of earthly cure. Or it might be explained that Mark's story reflects the culture in which it is set. Simon's mother-in-law would feel ashamed if she was unable to show courtesy to a guest in her house, and her healing has allowed her to restore her own sense of dignity and honor by performing what she would have felt was her duty. Or alternatively, it might be argued that the woman's act of service is the faithful demonstration of gratitude to Jesus and to the God whose power had healed her. Thus, she demonstrates what should be our own response to God's favor to serve in whatever way we can. While all of these interpretations have some truth in them, and while it is also true that Mark, as a product of his own times, might be excused for assuming the appropriateness of the woman's role for Simon's mother-in-law, it doesn't make the situation much more appealing to contemporary audiences. Nor does the fact that most rational people are reluctant to believe in demon possession or in the instant magical healing touch depicted in today's passage. How can we? We know far more about the causes of illness and the cures of disease than Mark did in the first century. And when we call something a miracle cure, it has a very different connotation than the sort of encounter that Mark describes. So how can today's reading speak in a meaningful way to our skeptical, scientific, feminist 20th century psyches? The answer, I would suggest, may be to approach the story of the woman's cure from a different perspective. I suggest that one valuable way of looking at it is to consider the structure of the story as the writer of Mark conveys it. The structure of this passage of scripture is what is called a chiasmus. This was a very common structural device in Hebrew scriptures. 
but also in ancient Greek literature. It's a rhetorical figure in which clauses, phrases, words, or sentences, or larger ideas are related to each other through a kind of inverted parallelism. The elements of the chiasmus are usually labeled in a form like ABBA, so that a simple chiasmus like JFK's famous ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, would, uh, we would label the term country A and the, the U as B, so that the structure country U can be described AB, and the inverted parallel structure of the U country could be labeled BA. In more complicated chiasmus structures, the reverse parallel phrases surround and serve to emphasize a focal point at the center of the passage. In a very complex chiasmus created here by Mark, there are actually six sets of parallel verses, including today's Gospel reading and the reading from last week, which immediately precedes it in Mark's Gospel, in which the incident of the raising of Simon's mother-in-law is sandwiched between two accounts of exorcisms. Uh, let me refresh your memories by reading last week's Gospel, which was Mark 1, 21 through 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convincing, uh, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And then follows today's Gospel reading. Bear with me a few minutes while I become a bit pedantic and outline the parallel passages. The first incident, call it A, describes Jesus coming to Capernaum and teaching in the synagogue. That's Mark 1.21. The final incident describes Jesus leaving Capernaum and preaching in synagogues throughout Galilee. That's verse 39. In the second incident, B, the people are astounded at Jesus' teaching. Verse 22. In the second to last, B prime, Jesus says he will go out among the people of Galilee, presumably to astound them as well. In verse 38. In the C passage, a man appears in the synagogue with an unclean spirit that cries out that it knows Jesus. In C prime, in the morning, Jesus goes to a deserted place and prays. Simon and the others hunt for him, track him down, and tell him that everyone's looking for him. The parallelism here is difficult to see, but I think it lies in the fact that in the first instance, Jesus is disturbed in his preaching by an unclean spirit that annoys him. In the second, he's disturbed in his praying by his disciples, who, as so often in the case of Mark's Gospel, also annoy him. The D passage has Jesus rebuking the spirit and casting it out, and the spirit crying out in a loud voice. In the parallel D prime passage, verse 34, Jesus casts out many demons, 
and charges all of them to be silent. Finally, in the E verses, the people of Capernaum are astounded and Jesus' fame spreads through Galilee. Well, in the parallel E prime verses, 32 and 33, the people react to Jesus' fame by bringing him many other cases and by standing at the doorway of Simon's house to watch what Jesus does to be amazed some more. This brings us to the center of the structure, the focal point, the climax of the passage, the three verses in which Christ heals Simon's mother-in-law. These can be seen as a final pair of parallel passages. F, in which the woman is described as ill, lying in bed, and completely passive. And F prime, where the woman is cured, raised up by the touch of Jesus, and active. She has attained what contemporary critics would call agency, the power to act freely, purposefully and decisively, unencumbered by illness or by any other outside force. And her free choice is to serve Jesus. Not only is the mother-in-law foregrounded by her central position, but that emphasis serves to underscore what a great contrast there is between this miracle story and the two exorcisms that surround it. Surely Mark wanted us to see this contrast. In the two stories of Jesus casting out demons, no mention is made in either place of what happened to the people who were cured. We assume they went back to living their normal lives, but Mark never says so. He never says anything. For him, the importance of these stories lies in the fact that as public spectacles, they were demonstrations of Jesus' power. Mark's gospel is sometimes called the gospel of power, since so much of it is concerned with these demonstrations. But the healing of Simon's mother-in-law is an intimate affair done only in the presence of the four disciples that Jesus has so far called. It is personal and takes place in the woman's own home. And the focus is not on the great deed of power, but on the intimate relationship between Jesus and the woman who's healed, and then on the result of that healing for her own life. In what specific ways is the central story of the woman different from the stories of the exorcisms? First, in her story, Jesus touches her rather than simply commanding the illnesses to come out of her. This intimate touch is unusual. This is a society where men do not touch women who aren't members of their own family. Yet Jesus' first instinct is to touch her lovingly, a social faux pas that compounds the fact that he's also healing her on the Sabbath. But his desire to heal her and showing love to her through this touch is a part of the healing process supersedes any trivial social constraints. Second, Simon's mother-in-law is raised up by Jesus. The verb that Mark uses here is egere, the same verb used in the resurrection account at the end of the gospel. The woman is raised as Christ was raised. Her rebirth is into a new life. It foreshadows Christ's own resurrection. And once this has happened, she serves Jesus and the other disciples. The word here used is daikonai. This is the same word that Jesus uses to describe his own ministry in Mark 10.45, when he says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it is the verb that Mark uses in his 15th chapter, when after describing the crucifixion, he says... 
There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him. That's the New Revised Standards translation of daikone or served, provided for him. When he was in Galilee and there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. These are the women who stayed as witnesses to the crucifixion after the male disciples had all fled in fear. And the women who visited Jesus' tomb on the morning of the resurrection. Their presence indicates that the early followers of Christ were not just an old boy's network, but included numerous women as followers, women who were lifted up, born into new life through him, walked in Jesus' footsteps and served as part of their ministry that emulated his. The language of today's gospel passage links Simon's mother-in-law to these women. It implies she may have been one of these followers and caregivers. She is the first person in the gospel depicted as a servant in Jesus' sense of the word. This entire passage focuses attention on her and forces us to see her foregrounded in this light. The flashy casting out of demons is only a show of power to get the attention of the crowds. True redemption occurs when Jesus visits us in our own intimate place, when he raises us up to new life in him, and when he calls us to serve as he did. And he doesn't call us just to make him coffee. Amen.